my driving question for 10 years has been, you know, how many spikes and how many neurons drive a behavior? I don't care what behavior. You tell me what behavior your animal does. And if you can tell me exactly how many neurons, which neurons they are, where are they, how many spikes do you need in them over what time period, I would be really happy to die with that answer. Hi there, I'm Alex von Klemperer and this is CortexCast, the podcast bringing you discussions with some of the most interesting researchers in neuroscience today. We'll be exploring the full spectrum of neuroscience, from cognitive behavioral research to cutting-edge molecular and transgenic techniques. We also want to explore how these researchers think about the brain and what really drives them to ask the questions that they do. If you're interested in Cortex, then this is the cast for you. Cortexcast is the official podcast of the Cortex Club, an Oxford University student-run society which connects Oxford students and researchers with world-leading neuroscientists. Researchers are provided a forum ranging from small, intense debates to large discussion sessions, usually followed by drinks with the students at the pub. If you'd like to know more about Cortex Club, including some of our past speakers, you can head to our website, cortexclub.com. Before we jump into it, I'd like to just ask the following. If you like what we're doing here, please subscribe or like this episode or leave a comment. If you love the show, tell us what you love about it. And if it isn't working for you, then let us know what you really didn't like about it. I'm Paula Kanders, and in this episode, Lucas and I interview Adam Packer, who is a Wellcome Trust Sir Henry Dale Fellow at the Department of Physiology, Anatomy and Genetics here at Oxford. He's done a lot of work developing new techniques for reading and writing neural activity in awake behaving animals, and has now set up his lab in Oxford to continue using these techniques to study neural coding. Besides this, he has developed a fascination for a mysterious brain region we know very little about, the claustrum. This is a somewhat unusual episode, as we weren't able to meet with Adam in person due to the current COVID crisis, so we called him instead, meaning the sound quality isn't as good as what you're used to from us. The content, however, remains just as interesting. Enjoy. Hi, Adam. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, It's a bit of an unusual episode today because we're doing it via Skype, but I hope that nonetheless it'll be a stimulating conversation and we're excited to have you here. So first of all, we always start by asking our interviewees, what got you interested in science? Were you interested in science as a kid? Yeah, thanks for having me here. I'm excited to be here. I think I always, I was always um, interested in science. I was always interested in how things work. I was always kind of, you know, one of these kids who was tinkering and taking things apart. Uh, I kind of thought actually originally that I would go uh, to medical school, but then it turns out that I didn't have such a major interest in helping people directly. Uh, it's a little bit of a strange thing to admit to, because um, I, you know, but I found that um, the the possibility of perhaps helping a lot more people, but with the risk of possibly not helping anybody at all, because of course we don't know if science is is going to work out, what we're going to find. I found that really enticing and intriguing to figure out new things um, and to sort of do that as a career. Once I realized that that was actually a possible thing to do, um, it seemed like kind of an obvious choice. So you really grew into this mindset of a, a scientist. What in the end got you interested in uh, the brain and how did you end up um, as a neuroscientist? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I actually started out in physics. And it turns out in physics, you really need a huge amount of background. You really need a lot of work prior to really being able to make any sort of contributions. You know, there's so much known, there's so much, you know, centuries of, of work that's being done. You know, you need to spend, you know, years and years of graduate school just mastering uh, quantum mechanics and general relativity before you can start to, to sort of make any kind of new, say anything new. Whereas with, with neuroscience, you can just jump in the lab. There's so much to figure out. There's so many things we don't know. And I found that really exciting. I actually, I took a, a neuroanatomy course uh, in this, this wonderful thing my, my university offered where you could just, one in January, you could take all sorts of interesting things that people would offer to sort of short introductions to things. Uh, and I took a neuroanatomy class where you dissect, dissect a sheep brain. Uh, and we were, we were looking at uh, somatosensory cortex and you know how does it code for things? And no one believes them when I tell them this story because I still do the same thing 20 years later. It's hard to believe, but it really is true. It, this actually turned me on to neuroscience that we fundamentally didn't know the answer. And um, the guy that was running the course is a professor named Chris Moore, still studies somatosensation actually. He says, you know, we don't really fully know the answer to that question, but you can come to my lab tomorrow and contribute something to figuring out the answer. Like you don't need a huge amount of background you can learn it all on the fly. And I just found that amazing. And I basically switched and have been doing neuroscience ever since. So what was your first project then? Um, what uh, did you start on the day after your interaction with Professor Moore? Ah, that's interesting. So it's kind of funny because it's very, very different from what I do now. I actually first found an opportunity to work in a lab doing fMRI. And they were studying the impact of emotional imagery on young versus old people. So they were looking at When I say emotional imagery, I mean like you have a picture of someone holding out an ice cream cone or a gun, you know, have very different sort of emotional responses to those. And they were looking at how, you know, neural activity in young versus old people is different in response to these sorts of images. Uh, and my job as an undergrad, what, undergrad was to Photoshop the images so that they would be basically identical except for one element. So I would Photoshop an ice cream cone out of a kid's hand and give him a gun instead. Um, so I was basically the grunt, you know, providing the, the, the imaging for this study. And it's, it's funny now, uh, years later, because I, I don't do that sort of thing at all anymore. But it was, it was, it was fun to see. And then and shortly thereafter, actually, I got into um, uh, a lab studying songbirds and Michael Fee's lab uh, at MIT. I was, I was trying to, um, I was basically doing, a, again, sort of the grunt work, as you do as an undergrad, I was doing a immunohistochemistry and histology of bird brain slices. Because that was my first real interaction with brains, with my own fingers, I should say. Cool. So now your work focuses on the recording and manipulation of neurons in order to understand what neurons are encoding during behavior. And one of the main techniques that you use is called all optical integration. Now, I think most of our listeners will have no idea what that is. Could you explain to us what this technique does? So this is a method for reading and writing neural activity using light. So that's where the all optical part comes from it. And the interrogation is basically that we're trying to literally interrogate the brain. We're trying to, to probe it with questions, you might say, and, and see what it has to say in response. And so the way this works in practice is we use calcium imaging to record the activity of neurons. So that's the reading part. Uh, and we also use optogenetics to, to stimulate neurons, to generate activity in them. So that's the writing of activity part. Uh, and we use these two things in concert. So we use them at the same time. So that's where it's, it's more of a conversation. It's a back and forth between these, uh, these two sort of parallel strands of, of the conversation. And the, the other thing that we do, the way, the way that we actually do this is using something called two-photon excitation. So this is a microscopy technique 
that allows you to deliver light into the brain of awake behaving animals uh, and more than just sort of the surface depth you would get with a standard fluorescence microscope. So we can go say, you know, almost all the way through a mouse neocortex, use not quite all the way, but nearly there, through it, for example, the, the neocortex of a mouse. And what, what that means is that we can read and write neural activity in awake behaving animals. So we're actually, in a way, having a sort of conversation with the brain while the animal is using it. We're reading what the activity of the neurons is that they're using to say, do a particular task. And then we're probing or testing how those neurons may do that by activating particular sets of neurons that we find doing interesting things. So that's, that's what the method is about. Thanks, Adam. I'd like to go one step back and um, ask you a little bit about your postdoc career. So you worked for many years in the lab of Raphael Juste, and his lab is very well known for uh, calcium imaging. Um, so in one way, uh, there was already idea to read brain activity uh, using light information. Now, how did you come up with the idea to actually use uh, optogenetics for both, for reading neuron activity, but also for uh, writing neuron activity? Yeah, so I, I, um, I did my PhD with Rafa, and one thing he always used to say is that we're, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. So we're always, uh, you know, expanding on, refining, embellishing, and optimizing, building on the ideas of those that came before us. And so when I was in, in Rafa's lab, they were already using techniques for uh, all optical interrogation in brain slices, so in vitro. Uh, and at that time, this was uh, prior to the sort of optogenetic revolution that has, of course, uh, swept through neuroscience. But we were using calcium imaging in slices combined with glutamate uncaging to activate neurons instead of optogenetics. So this was a different way of writing activity, of manipulating activity that required perfusing a slice with a caged compound. You could then shine light on to uncage it uh, and release that neuroactive compound. Usually we were using glutamate to sort of, you know, excitatory neurotransmitter to, to directly activate neurons. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time using that technique and trying to combine it with calcium imaging. I also helped out with a paper from the USDA lab that was, that was published at that time on using that method in slices. So when optogenetics came out and it was clear that you could do this in vivo, that you didn't need to apply any endogenous, you know, any, any other compound, it was, it was kind of an obvious marriage. It was an obvious thing to put together. Uh, and I happened to be essentially the right person in the right place at the right time to say, hey, I have the skills to combine these things. I know what we need to do to make this work. And that's really where I think the, the beauty of the all optical approach in a way was, was not just that we combine them and we put them together, but we tried to give everybody a sort of recipe or a cookbook of, of how this works and what are the, what are the trade-offs that you need to, to think about when you're using the technique and what are the potential caveats? Because it's not a panacea. It's not perfect. You still have some issues like the imaging laser can, can activate neurons if you're not careful. And so all of that stuff, of course, it's in the supplements of the original paper, but I think it was the kind of thing that really made it particularly useful for people. So you went on to work in another um, very influential lab with Professor Michael Heuser in uh, London. Um, and that was really the time when you sort of uh, made this breakthrough development with all optical interrogation of neural circuits. Um, so what was so special about uh, this paper in 2015? What uh, really uh, made it different from the sort of gradual steps in the field that had been done before? Well, first, just to point out, it wasn't the only paper that was um, that was putting these things together. So there's another beautiful paper from Rick Gower et al. from uh, David Tank's lab that was also combining 
uh, calcium indicators in optogenetics in vivo to probe neural circuits. And they have some beautiful results from the hippocampus. And I think, you know, there were, it wasn't like we were sort of the only ones is what I want to say. We were very much, again, building on what a lot of people had done before, uh, including also our own work. So with Rafa, uh, I had another paper uh, where we were using optogenetics in slices, uh, again, to do uh, single cell precision control of neural activity, but in three dimensions. So we could say, okay, I pick out a few neurons in a volume and I want to stimulate only those neurons. I don't know anything about their genetic identity. They might be genetically very similar. Say they're all excitatory pyramidal cells in neocortex. But I know that say they do something interesting and I want to photostimulate those in particular. So Rafa and I had done this in slices and it was sort of um, a natural extension to, to bring this in vivo, which is where uh, the Heuser lab had a lot of skills in in vivo experiments. So they had been doing a lot of electrophysiology in vivo in different preps. And so there was a huge skill set there where it was sort of uh, a great place to sort of bring my skills and put them together. And again, what I think made this paper particularly useful was, was not only that we showed kind of what all the limits are and how it was useful, uh, but it was one of the first papers to say, okay, we, we, can, we can extend the optogenetic toolkit beyond combining just the opto part, the light with the genetics, you know, genetic identity, you know, hit a particular cell subtype. And now we can activate cells based on their functional identity. So we can hit a set of cells based on what they do. So we can image them and we can say, okay, these cells are doing this thing in this particular mouse on this day doing this task. And now I want to go and manipulate those cells specifically. That's what the, the technique really allows you to do. And I think that's why it's been a very exciting development. Right. So practically, what does that mean for the field? So it's really cool that you basically set up this recipe that any lab in the world with the correct resources can can use. But how has that improved our understanding of neurons? Or how do you think it will improve our understanding in the future? Yeah, that's a very good question. So I think the the major thing that allows us to do is to interrogate neural circuits at the spatial temporal complexity and, and richness of the dynamics uh, that they use to function. So certainly, you know, everyone chooses their level of, of understanding that they'd like to use to understand the brain. Some people are interested in how subcellular level, how do individual neurons, you know, process inputs. Some people don't care about individual neurons at all. They want to know how, you know, entire brain regions work together. Um, and I think this this particular approach is, is, is very useful in the middle ground where you want to say, okay, within this volume of a few thousand cells that we think are encoding some information or driving some sort of behavior, if I want to make specific hypotheses about which cells carry that signal and how, I need some technique that allows me not only to record and find those cells, but then also allows me to manipulate their activity so I can make you know, I can do causal experiments specifically by, by modulating on different conditions the activity of different cells. So I think that's where the power really comes in. And you can use that in a lot of different ways. So I think one, one easy way is just to ask, what is the impact of one or a group of cells on nearby cells? And we've seen a lot of interesting work come out uh, recently about that. So uh, Chris Harvey, for example, published a beautiful paper last year where they photostimulate one neuron and they ask what is the influence of that neuron on all the other neurons nearby and they learn a lot about the structure and, and function of the visual cortex by using this technique. We've also now done a similar thing by photostimulating a lot, you know, about 10 or 20 neurons as a group 
and looking at what is the, the activity of the neurons in the surrounding region. And so we have a preprint up on BioArchive about that at the moment. And you're seeing many labs uh, do this kind of thing. So there's been uh, a paper now from Carl Dizeroff's lab, from the Svoboda lab, they have a preprint up. Uh, Rafa has a, a string of beautiful papers using this technology as well. Again, just with the bottom line of, of trying to probe how do individual neurons work as groups to subserve some sort of behavior or functional connectivity in neural circuits. I'm wondering how you can use this technique to infer causality from manipulating one neuron and what effect that has on behavior and the other neurons. Yes, I think uh, there's been a lot of debate about causality. And I think the debate is very much warranted because a lot of times when we do optogenetics experiments, we sort of assume that they are causal by definition. And I don't think that's necessarily always the case. I think we often think of this in the simple case where we say that correlation is not causation. So for example, if we find that a bunch of neurons have activity in response to particular visual stimulus, and we say that those neurons you know, may encode that visual stimulus, some people may even go farther and say, well, it's likely that since they correlate with the stimulus, they also have some causal underpinning of subserving, for example, that the animal's response to that stimulus. And that's the kind of causality that we can test with this approach. So we, we can photostimulate those neurons and ask what is the sort of you know, minimal, necessary, and sufficient conditions in order to drive, for example, the animal's perception of that stimulus. Uh, but I think the problem comes in when you think about the downstream effects of a strong optogenetic manipulation. So for example, a lot of people have, have started talking about this kind of issue. I think the first and foremost in the field is Bense Olvetsky at Harvard has uh, you know, a bunch of, of papers showing that you know, when you drive a strong optogenetic stimulus, you have very strong effects on downstream regions. So you're not just affecting the region that you're directly photostimulating, and therefore you can't necessarily make a claim that this experiment is causal in the sense that you've only manipulated one variable. You're having a widespread effect. And so what we'd like to think is that all optical interrogation gives us the ability to tickle the circuit, to give us a, a less strong stimulation that is having a more specific effect on the cells uh, that we think are subserving a behavior. But it's worth mentioning that as our method improves and we can stimulate, you know, 100 neurons in, you know, a few milliseconds and 100 neurons that we choose, that is a large and very likely highly non-physiological stimulus still. So we're not, we're still not doing a perfect causal experiment in the sense that we're manipulating one variable while controlling all of the others and then being able to make a more stronger inference of causality. And I think it's worth bearing that in mind, especially as the, the methods get more and more powerful and we're doing less and less of a tickle, we're doing perhaps less controlled things. We need to design our experiments with these sorts of caveats in mind. CortexCast is only made possible through the generous support of the British Neuroscience Association. We are also supported by Oxford Neuroscience Departments. To find out more about our sponsors, including the full list of Oxford academic departments which support our work, check out our website at cortexclub.com.
I'd like to jump in here and ask something about uh, the limitations of the method as well, because um, I think you are a person who is very aware of technical um, aspects of this uh, methodology. And um, when I attended a conference recently, uh, I heard this big phrase, we want to read and write neural code. Now, from undergraduate lectures, I think we know that neural code really has several dimensions. So cell identity, spike timing, spike rate, synchrony. So which dimensions of the neural code can we actually mimic with this technique and which dimensions are more difficult to address? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think, you know, our hope is that we can perfectly vary across the dimensions of number of cells, number of spikes, frequency of activation, you know, if we can generate any sort of oscillatory or synchrony, you know, you know, how do we jitter up these spike times among different neurons? And certainly the technology does allow us to do that within, I think, two fundamental limits. So the first is on the number of cells that we can activate at any one time. And that is ultimately going to be limited by the amount of light that we can put into the brain without causing any sort of heating or damage. And so we know what the limits are with our lasers right now in terms of photo damage. So we, we, we obviously work below that limit. And there are others who use different approaches who have also found what the limits are for, for heating. So how much sort of power you can dump into the brain before you start raising it by, you know, some few degrees Celsius, which obviously is going to change the way things work and eventually be problematic, of course. So I think that's, that's a fundamental law. How many neurons can we hit? And that number appears to be about 100 in any one small unit of time. So in something like 10 milliseconds. And so that is one of the, the, the big limits. But keep in mind, we can hit another 100 neurons 10 milliseconds later. And we're only really limited by the duty cycle of how often we want to do that, right, per unit time. And, you know, again, if we design our experiments well, we can have you know, lots of time between trials, for example, so we can let any sort of, you know, heating that we may induce by, by activating a lot of neurons uh, go down. But, you know, in our hands, we don't get very much heating for the way that we're doing the photostimulation. So I think that is something that, that fundamentally limits, you know, how we can get to interrogating the, the size of the neural code. So if you imagine, you know, one barrel column in a mouse somatosensory cortex, you know, that responds to the inputs from a given whisker, for example, has something like 10,000 neurons. We can hit 100 of them every 10 milliseconds. We're getting pretty close to, you know, interrogating that entire circuit in a pretty short amount of time, also considering we don't ever really want to activate the whole thing at once anyway, or we've just gone all the way to the limit of, of one photon optogenetics, activating all of the neurons that are labeled at once with, with no selectivity. So I think that is a limit, but it's one that I don't think precludes us answering a lot of questions about neural codes. But within the limits of the, the second limitation, which is the timing. So when we photostimulate neurons, we can, with certain techniques, get down into the sort of millisecond and submillisecond regime of precision. So getting a spike exactly when we want it in time. And I'm glossing over a lot of technical details and not all of this is, is my own work. There's obviously a lot of people working on this kind of technology. And depending on what laser you choose, what option you choose, how you set up the experiment, you can get to these kinds of levels of precision. And I think that that is the kind of precision we need if we want to start asking questions about you know, spike timing and synchrony at the millisecond level. You want to jitter those spike times on those sorts of timescales to see if it matters? Or do you just need a certain number of spikes per second, like you said, rate code? And so I think we can we can get there, but what's what's really challenging is doing all of these things at once. So doing you know, 100 neurons 
in 10 milliseconds with sub-millisecond jitter in an awake behaving animal is not something that I think has really been, been really shown that it's precise across all neurons. So I think those are the current limitations with the other big limitation being the readout speed. So it's not just timing of injecting the spikes, it's also calcium imaging does not have as high temporal resolution as electrophysiological recordings. They don't tell us exactly when a spike occurred, but that, that's something that we can also work on. We can build faster indicators, we can move to voltage indicators, there's solutions for that as well. So I think there are limitations, but, but we're working on all of them with the hopes of getting at these sort of deeper coding questions than just do these neurons do this thing. One thing I'm quite curious about is in practice, how do you go about developing these techniques? So if you have an existing technique, how do you identify what improvements are needed? And then where do you start from there? So I think for us, the improvements are always, and I realize I've been talking a lot about the sort of technological aspects or technical aspects of this, of this kind of work, but really and truly we're motivated by the biological questions. We want to know, you know, my, my driving question for 10 years has been, you know, how many spikes and how many neurons drive a behavior? I don't care what behavior. You tell me what behavior your animal does. And if you can tell me exactly how many, you know, how many neurons, which neurons they are, where are they, how many spikes do you need in them over what time period, I would be really happy to die with that answer, right? That we, 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 there's some fundamental understanding we have of the brain works. And I don't think we really have that for just about any behavior, except maybe some of the, the simplest possible behaviors you can imagine, or certainly not at least in, in sort of neocortical circuits in, in mice or higher than mice, right? So that's what I, that's what I really want to know. And that's what motivated developing this technique in the first place. I mean, this was, this was why we wanted to build this. And so that's, that's what always drives the, the technique. It's not like, oh, gee, well, we can do a hundred neurons. Can we do a thousand? Let's just see if we can. And no, it, there's gotta be a question behind it. Otherwise you're just building the method for the message sake, which I don't think is, is particularly useful. So for example, the next burning question I have is that, you know, the number one thing we see when we photostimulate a pocket of neurons is inhibition. The brain shuts it down. It's not surprising, right? Disynaptic inhibition is really strong. And so now we want to push in, you know, understanding how are those uh, interneurons, you know, receiving that? Over what time period do they respond? How do those responses evolve? How does it shut down the activity? How do you turn off the inhibition once that stimulus is over? Calcium imaging is, is not particularly good at recording interneurons, but there are a lot of techniques for uh, getting better at that. So calcium uh, sensors or calcium indicators are getting better at that. We could go voltage indicators as well. And so I think that's where uh, we're really trying to, to push the development of the technique is focusing on what is the next question, the biological question we want to ask, and letting that drive the development of the method as opposed to just, you know, the method for method's sake, because we can do it, I don't think is, is particularly useful. It doesn't keep you close to what's useful for us in the lab and what we hope is useful for others. Adam, you came to Oxford as a Sir Henry Dale Fellow and very early on uh, got a ERC starter grant to work on a brain region which is uh, notoriously difficult to image because it's deep down in the brain, uh, the claustrum. Um, so why did you take up this challenge and what are the big questions related to the claustrum that uh, drive your curiosity? Yeah, the, the claustrum is, it's really funny how I got there. It's quite random. And once I got there, I basically got stuck. That's the short answer. So. How I got there is I was given this wonderfully zany project by Rafa when I started in his lab as a technician to record from somatostatin interneurons. So Rafa had this idea that at some point when you get to the limits of different subtypes of cells, okay? So if you're trying to understand, okay, 
there's excitatory and inhibitory within the inhibitory. There's somatostatin within the somatostatin cells. There's some subtypes. At some point, when you get to the bottom of the barrel, the last useful subtype division, you should end up with neurons that are exactly the same. They're carbon copies of each other, electrophysiologically, morphologically, transcriptomically. And he had actually filled some neurons, uh, I think from human tissue, that looked eerily similar. They were nearby to each other and they had almost exactly the same morphology. And so his idea was to go search for these carbon copy cells. And so I patched a ton of somatostatin interneurons trying to find two that were exactly the same, some carbon copy cells. And it was, it's the absolute, the best sort of project because you just patch lots of cells. And there's also this wonderfully zany idea, as I said. And you might be wondering, okay, well, how is this going to get to the colostrum? Well, it turns out I had a somatostatin GFP mouse, so it expressed GFP in these, these somatostatin interneurons, for targeting them so I could find them in splice. And it just so happened randomly that near to the colostrum, there was a ball of really brightly labeled cells in this particular transgenic for some strange reason. And I, as a very naive uh, technician, I had just gotten out of university, looked up in the atlas and thought it was the colostrum. And I spoke to some anatomists and it turns out I was completely wrong. It was the dorsal endopiriform nucleus, which is quite funny actually, because from that moment on, I, I was stuck on the colostrum, even though I actually didn't have a way of finding it. After starting to read about it, and this was actually around the time that Francis Crick and Christoph Koch's well-known 2005 review on the colostrum came out, uh, and I read that, and that paper was basically a call to arms that we should do more research on the colostrum, and we now have the tools to get at this brain area. We can you know, label the projections coming in and out of it, we can record from it, we can do all these things, and we really should, because it's this deeply fascinating area that has lots of connections both to and from the neocortex. But yeah, I, I basically started, um, I basically got hooked, even though I did not have a way of accessing colostrum at all. This transgenic turned out to not label the colostrum, which is, again, ironic, because that is the number one problem with the colostrum is sort of finding it, getting access to it. But I think that tells you kind of what the, the big questions still really are, are defining the boundaries of it well, defining what types of cells are in it, understanding what the activity of those cells are during, you know, natural or trained behaviors. And then understanding what, what the function of it is ultimately. So if we can, again, you know, turn those cells on or off, manipulate them in a behavioral context and see what impact it has on the animal's performance, we can start to understand what's really going on down there. Uh, and that's basically once I, once I got that bug, it was hard to, to let it go. So it sounds like a very mysterious brain region that we don't know much about. What do we know about it? So the number one thing that we know about it is it is very, very highly connected uh, to mostly, but not exclusively, neocortical areas and mostly frontal areas. So by far and away, that's the number one thing you see. Anytime you inject a tracer somewhere in neocortex, uh, you're probably, if you look closely enough, find something in the colostrum. Uh, or if you do any sort of presynaptic mapping of projections in both directions, effectively, right? You see things to and from the colostrum. And it's also true in humans. It's been proposed that it's the structure with the highest degree of connectivity per volume. So it really punches above its weight. Um, it's this long, thin sheet nestled between the, the neocortex and the striatum. Uh, it's bilateral. It's on both sides. Uh, and it has been, because of this connectivity, it's been hypothesized to have a role in a lot of different things. Crick and Koch in their famous review said it would have something to do with perhaps integrating conscious percepts, which of course the field interpreted as the claustrum being the seat of consciousness, which is of course a, a hypothesis that we struggle with as sort of hardcore quantitative neuroscientists every day. We'd like to leave consciousness to the philosophers. Um, 
But I think we can we can get at you know people have tried to get at what we can study, for example, in animal models uh, like this, you know, from this sort of an angle. So looking at things like salience and attention, multimodal integration, it's been implicated in a lot of these. There's just been two papers came out this in the last few months that the claustrum may be linked to sleep. So generating sort of slow wave activity in different, in different uh, organisms, actually. And uh, it's been, it really has been implicated in a lot of things. There's even been human studies of you know, epileptic patients where they're doing a sort of resection mapping surgery, where they're putting in electrodes in different places and trying to figure out what they do. They accidentally activated the claustrum in a woman who they claim then you know, lost consciousness when they, when they stimulated the claustrum. And I've actually seen the video of this. It's really striking. She's, she's reading from a book. And she, um, they stimulate the claustrum and she stops reading. She sort of stares blankly, completely unresponsive to commands. And, uh, and then they turn the stimulator off and she goes back to reading as if nothing happened. And they ask her, did you feel any funny? And she has no idea what happened, right? She just has no recollection of it all, which for some people, you know, ticks a sufficient number of boxes to hint at consciousness, right? So I think, you know, there have been a lot of hypotheses, but really what we need to do is go after this area with all of the arsenal that modern neuroscience has to offer. So all the new, you know, techniques of viral tracing, genetic, transgenic approaches, as well as obviously the imaging and optogenetics that allow us to record it and manipulate it to really try to tease out what is its at least uh, primary role, even if you, you might think that the idea of a particular brain area doing one thing is perhaps no longer in vogue, but we've got to start zeroing in on it. You said that one of the most uh, recent developments in the field of claustrum research um, are actually two papers which just came out a few weeks ago, uh, linking the claustrum to sleep and indicating that claustrum might play a huge role in the synchronization of uh, slow effectivity during sleep. Do you think this is a first step towards linking claustrum to global brain state control? It very well could be. I think what's interesting about these two papers is is one of them is in Australian dragons and turtles. So it's a sort of lizard reptile kind of thing. And the other one is in mice. And so I think the fact that you've got this conserved function across, you know, these evolutionary scales is is in and of itself interesting. And even in, you know, in mice, what we see is that you have a large number of serotonin receptors and opioid receptors highly enriched in the colostrum. So there's a link there. But for me, it's, it's a little bit confusing. Why do you have this strong connectivity that is actually heavily biased towards frontal structures if it's more linked to a global kind of brain state control that you, when you say global, you would think it's going to be equally distributed across all, but it's not. It's got some, some topography. There's some structure there that's, that's biased. And so I think it's really tough to say, especially because the claustrum has been linked to a large number of other possible roles, salience, attention, multimodal integration. And it's possible that there's some overarching uh, idea that fits them all together, uh, that there's it's some sort of global neuromodulatory function that can affect all of these different things. Um, it's some sort of conductor of the orchestra, so to speak. But I'm not so sure. I think the jury's out. I think that's why we need to do more of this work. I mean, that's basically what I want to do in the lab is go and, and try these different things. Um, the claustrum is also you know, highly linked to the insular cortex, which is processing pain. So, you know, which, which of these things is it or, or how is it that it's all of them? Uh, and I think it's just a big open question. And yeah, these, these two papers put another dot on the board of, of things we need to investigate. It's a really exciting times for the claustrum. Yes. And that's, that's definitely one where uh, we have some positions on our, on our ERC grant. If people are interested in coming to work on the claustrum, definitely get in touch. 
So you just said all of these new methodologies are really allowing us to do unprecedented in investigations of brain areas. Um, so maybe setting all of the technical limitations aside for a moment, what would be your dream experiment to investigate the function of the claustrum? My, my dream experiment for the claustrum would be to directly test our current running favorite hypothesis that it has something to do with multimodal integration. So we have some evidence that there are individual neurons in the claustrum that receive inputs from two different brain regions onto the same individual neuron. So you can imagine it's possible that those neurons play a pivotal role in integrating those inputs to provide the, the percept of, or a unified percept of a single object with multiple sort of features in the environment. So for example, to make it explicit, imagine there's something in the environment that is both flashing and making a sound. Uh, there might be a neuron in the claustrum that reports specifically the conjunction of those features and is pivotal for combining them into this unified percept of a single flashing, buzzing thing out in the environment. Uh, and we can probe this in mice with psychophysical assays. We can train mice to respond to visual and auditory input or the combination of their input, find neurons in the claustrum that respond in particular, for example, to the multimodal input, and then either inactivate or activate those experiments and try to bias the animal's behavior, which we should be able to do if those neurons have a pivotal role in that behavior. Now that is basically the end, what I'm hoping to do at the end of the time that we have um, this grant money to study the claustrum because it's gonna be very difficult to pinpoint those specific neurons and find a way of accessing them and manipulating only those neurons. That's exactly the kind of thing that's that's in our wheelhouse of, of the sort of technical arsenal that we have. So I'm really hoping we get there. So I heard in a previous conversation that you are now extending your technical arsenal. And on top of your two-photon microscope, uh, you are also now building a three-photon microscope. What are the technical advantages and how might it uh, be useful for the interrogation of the claustrum? Yes, yeah, this is, this is a very exciting development. So I mentioned earlier in the call that two-photon microscopy allows us to probe deep into scattering tissue. And I, I said, you know, we can get almost to the bottom of neocortex. Now, that's about a millimeter deep. You can't quite get all the way there with two-photon. Maybe you can get, you know, 600 or at most 800 microns, depending on what you're doing. But what we'd really like to do is image the colostrum directly. And we can't do that with two-photon. But three-photon microscopy allows us to go even that little bit more deep. So uh, beyond a millimeter, maybe up to even 1.5 millimeters deep. And it just so happens that if you approach the claustrum from the side, it's buried under the neocortex, just about a millimeter to a millimeter and a half deep. So it's really in the sweet spot for three photon microscopy where it's gonna work very well. And the reason why we want to image the structure as opposed to, for example, recording it electrophysiologically, which we're, we're also planning to do, is that we can find the activity of neurons, but also while knowing their spatial position. So the disadvantage of imaging, of course, is that we don't have the temporal precision of the electrophysiological approach, as I mentioned earlier. But the advantage that we gain is we can say, you know, this neuron over on the left side of the field of view is active to these stimuli, whereas these neurons on the right side of the field of view are active to these stimuli. And then we can, we can map, you know, across the entire claustrum where we find different functional zones of responses. And I think, as always in biology, if we had a better idea of how the structure was organized, which neurons are responding to which things at which in which locations, it really helps us understand a lot what the function is. And so I think that the three-photon microscope, the 3P, is going to be uh, really useful in that regard. And again, it's, it's just the sweet spot for the colostrum, so it's really exciting. You already mentioned that there's this interesting effect 
uh, in humans if the classroom being stimulated. What can we learn about ourselves as humans from the very specific um, study of functionality in very specific neurons that you do? Yeah, that's a good question. I think fundamentally, we don't understand how the brain works. I think most neuroscientists would generally agree with that. There's, there's some people who are trying to build maybe unified theories of how it all works. But not only do we not know, I think there are a lot of unknown unknowns. There are a lot of features of how brains work that we're not maybe completely aware of yet, or at least we don't know which features of how they work are most crucial to their sort of unified function as a whole. And so I think we need every, we need to attack every step of this puzzle. We need people working on how do synapse, how do vesicles get across a synapse and fuse into the membrane? You know, we need to understand that. We need to understand how deleting those proteins that make that possible result in ultimately, you know, devastating neurological disorders. And, you know, all the way up at the other end of the spectrum, we need to understand how brain regions interact. How do you get top-down feedback from higher order brain areas impacting lower order brain areas? I mean, we're talking spatial scales from you know, nanometers up to millimeters. And I think we need everything in between. And that just happens to be where my interest lies, is understanding how individual neurons work together in a concerted fashion to encode information. And I think ultimately that will, I hope that will give us one of the big building blocks in understanding how brains work in general as unified organs. Uh, and so I don't know that this will be immediately useful in the sense that it might not help us solve any diseases tomorrow, for example. Uh, but another thing we're getting into in my lab is studying how seizures propagate. So obviously our, our, our approach of you know, recording and manipulating single cells is really useful when you want to understand how aberrant activity, you know, too much electrical activity, hops from cell to cell. Because if you can understand that and you can stop it, you can potentially you know, have a really positive impact on epileptic patients. And so I think you know, a lot of this kind of stuff, you know, it's hard to say today where it's all going to go. But if I also look back, you know, 10 years ago from when we were, we were doing this in brain slices and we, it was just a dream that would be able to do this in awake behaving animals and probe, you know, which neurons drive a behavior, which, which is of course the dream, you know, I just keep plugging away and doing what I do and, and let the cards fall where they may. I think we're, we're, I like to think we're headed in a very good direction. So you just mentioned the point of um, really interrogating behavior using these techniques. So what are the next big steps in terms of technology uh, on the way of really creating, for example, artificial percepts, um, as uh, some neuroscientists would like to do? Yeah, I, I would like to do that. We have, we have some, as I mentioned earlier in the call, we have, we have a paper up on BioArchive where we're pushing, you know, the percept of an animal in, in one direction or another, right? And uh, I think we're there, but basically what we're doing right now is, in a way, the very simple, they're not simple experiments to do, but the concept is simple, that we are really proving that correlation in this case is causation. If you find a bunch of neurons that spike in response to a stimulus, and then it's a stimulus that you've trained the animal to report, right, say a you know, flash on a visual screen, and the animal can detect it. And then, you know, the neurons that are active during that are, of course, correlated with that. And so you think, well, they have some, they're somehow subserving the perception of that stimulus. Well, if you then photostimulate those neurons, you can prove that they are driving that, right? And I think it's, it's, it's again, trying just to break that correlation is not causation and saying, well, in this case, yes, it actually is. But in a way, it's quite simple. That is the most parsimonious hypothesis. Those neurons respond to that stimulus. 
we turn them on when they were not otherwise on. And so the animal thinks the stimulus is there. What I think the next generation of tools is going to do is not focus on exact neuronal identities. It's neurons one, two, five, seven, and nine that drive the behavior. But in fact, on which patterns of activity drive behavior. So you can imagine that you know, you're in some neural activity space where different neurons could contribute to being in a different part of that neuronal activity space. And maybe you're in a similar part of the space, whether neurons one, two, seven, and nine are active versus 13, 72, and 512. Well, if you can on a trial by trial way, monitor the activity of this population and figure out exactly which neurons would best put you in that position in the neuronal activity space, the space of all neurons activity, that would take you beyond this. And it would say, okay, now we're looking at these population dynamics, no longer tied to just individual neuron identities, but rather, again, trying to get at how the whole population stores that information. It might not just be that there are specific neurons that do one thing. It's almost certainly not. It's that the population encodes that activity as a unit. So we want to bring the technology up to that level, but that is really challenging. It's sort of, it's not just a technical challenge of closing the loop. So we, ha we have a, the sort of next generation of all optical technology is to do this kind of thing, is to sort of generate a photostimulation pattern based on the activity that was just observed. So we've got some of the technical aspects of it. The bigger problem is actually the sort of theoretical or computational underpinnings of, of how that information is stored in the population. Which neurons should we shoot? And that's where we that's where we really need close collaboration with theoretical and computational neuroscientists that can analyze these really big, thorny, multidimensional spaces and tell us what's going on to give us the targets to to photostimulate. Yeah, I guess in that way, it really shows how neuroscience lies at the intersection of many different disciplines. And I think you mentioned consciousness before. I think that's also a perfect example of that. I was wondering what are some of the most interesting or inspiring developments outside your specific field that you've been maybe following a little bit? There's two that come to mind. I think one is the richer behavioral assays and measurements that we're starting to see. So people are really breaking down behavior in really, you know, in detailed quantifiable ways using, you know, machine learning approaches to try and accurately say exactly what is, what is an animal doing at this precise moment in time? How are they doing it? So I think that's super useful as we are obviously trying to drive behaviors and we want to know exactly, we want to be able to quantify that and not just in a sort of manual scoring where someone watches a video and says, oh, I think the animal's doing this, that, or the other thing. We want them to be automated. Um, so I think those those are those efforts are 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 fantastic in terms of uh, really putting all of this together, right? And when I say all of this, I mean you know recording what neurons are doing, being able to manipulate what neurons are doing, but also seeing how that impacts the behavior. We need to have this rich assay of behavior. There's a long tradition of this in neuroscience, but it's it's obviously very recently been you know approached with these more computational type approaches, which I think is really useful. The other thing I'm really excited about, which I'll be completely honest, I know, very little about, which is also what I find kind of exciting, is obviously all the new genetic strategies, uh, genetic manipulation. So CRISPR-Cas9, these sorts of things will hopefully make it easier for us to develop, you know, transgenic lines with new opsins, with new calcium indicators. When we want to try out new things, um, we, we should hopefully be able to turn the crank on that a lot faster. Are there any ideas that are generally accepted that you think we should be more skeptical of as scientists? I guess I'm so skeptical of everything that I'm not sure there's any one idea that's kind of taken over. 
I think I myself am I'm often too desiring of a simple answer to, to how the brain works, that we can chop it up into bits and each bit does a specific thing. And this is also, you know, obviously, you know, maybe even earlier on the call, I, you know, I'll say things like, what does the colostrum do? Well, the colostrum itself probably doesn't do any one thing just by itself. It's part of a unit. You know, the brain, if you look, it's constantly loops upon loops. You know, area A is connected to B, is connected to C, is back to D, back to A, and F is connected to all of them. You know, it just, it's loops upon loops. And so to, to say that any one area does one thing in isolation, I think is always often too simplistic, but it's it can at the same time be a, the reason why we all do it is because it's a useful sort of heuristic for understanding, right? So I don't know if it's completely generally accepted. I think, of course, a lot of people no longer subscribe to the idea that, you know, one brain area does one thing. But it's, I think it's one that we always need to be wary of because it's also useful to some extent. Visual cortex is probably mostly useful for processing visual input. But that's, of course, not the only thing that it does. And if you think that way, then, yeah, it could get you into trouble sometimes. But I guess you have to start somewhere, right? Exactly. Cool. So insight sources have revealed that um, in these trying times, you like to do PE with Joe with the lab uh, <laughs> collectively. So I guess that's one thing that you enjoy doing outside of your work. What other things inspire you or refuel you besides work? I, the way I usually answer this question is is that uh, my my wife and I try to keep up with our three daughters, which I think is even more true now in in coronavirus times. That we've got three kids at home. We've been very fortunate, actually, that they haven't uh, interrupted this call. I have to say, but um, I think yeah, that's how PE with Joe started. Actually, is he started doing it with the kids and the lab, and everybody got involved, and now we've actually progressed onto other other workouts even as a team, which is which is really nice to do to, to have some socialization. I think, uh, yeah, you know, keeping up with the with a lab and with three kids, I have to say, and unfortunately, a lot of my the hobbies that I used to have 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 fallen by the wayside. So, for example, I used to I used to bake bread often because it was an experiment that just about always works. You know, it was very you know getting the yeast to go and and rising. It's very uh, it's somehow very um, very satisfying, especially when you do a lot of experiments in the lab maybe that don't work. But yeah, now three kids, I haven't I haven't baked bread in in uh, quite a while. One thing that we'd be interested to hear as well, from your perspective, like you said, you've tried many different things, many different labs. What is sort of the main thing that you've learned in that time that you would give as advice to us graduate students? Focus on what gets you out of bed in the morning. What about your experiments you find really interesting and exciting? And, you know, keep your head down and don't worry about the papers and the publications, which everybody tells you and is impossible to do because everybody knows at the same time that you do have to be a bit pragmatic uh, you know, in this field, and and you are um, the goal should not be to publish papers. The goal should be to to generate knowledge. That's what we're really doing here is trying to generate understanding. And it's all too easy to learn to lose sight of that uh, in the rat race a bit. And I think, especially in the beginning, when you're doing actually in a way you're doing the most work kind of at the bench that you may ever do, but you're seeing the the, the sort of least result from it in the sense that it takes so long these days to get papers out. Um, but if you sort of just keep your head down and keep plugging away and doing good work at the bench, uh, all that other stuff will come. It will all work out. And so just try to put it out of your mind as much as possible. I know it's not completely possible because people told me the same thing. Um, but I think it's good to just keep repeating that message because it is an important one. So following your intrinsic curiosity rather than following a specific career path. Yes. And I, I think at the same time, I don't, you know, there, you, there needs to be some level of pragmatism. You, you do need to think about finishing projects and getting things done and getting it out there and when is enough and uh, enough. And I think that's where, 
you know, you really need to listen to your supervisors and listen to your mentors uh, because we've all been through this before and we know we know what the challenges are. And not to say we have all the answers, but at least we have some idea of what's more likely to kind of head in the right direction. So in an earlier interview, you said that you have been very fortunate to have good mentors throughout your career. How did you find these mentors and how do graduate students in general um, identify people who might give them good guidance for their career? I think the, the most important thing to do is to keep your, your eyes and ears open and, and stay in touch with people. I think the importance of networking can't be underestimated. And I think it's kind of a buzzword in a sense, but there's a big truth to it, which is all the people you meet on your program are all going to move on and, and do things. And you stay in touch with them. And then, you know, maybe they'll end up going somewhere that you want to do a postdoc, things like that. Right. So I actually got to my PhD lab in an incredibly circuitous route. So I was um, working as a, as a researcher in New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina hit. Uh, and I went back to the lab that I had done the, the songbird work in, Michael Fee's lab at uh, MIT. It just so happened that somebody had uh, moved from Rafa Yuste's lab to that lab. And I said, oh, Rafa's looking for a technician. You should go apply down there. And then I started with Rafa and I got this whole bug to, you know, read and write neural activity and the rest is history. And it all kind of started from Hurricane Katrina. I mean, it's totally random. So I think you also need to take these random hits in life and kind of roll with them and find whatever is going to be the, the next opportunity for you. Um, and I think also don't be afraid to just go talk to people at conferences. I, I think I first met Michael Heuser at a, a SFN, some, um, like, you know, one of those side symposium things. Uh, a workshop it was uh, prior called, I think it was Genes, Electrons, and Photons, something like that. And, you know, he was organizing with a few other people on, on kind of new techniques in neuroscience. And, you know, the, I think the first time I actually talked to him in person, I just walked up to him and chatted with him about stuff. Uh, and then we kind of stayed in touch. And um, I realized that his lab would be a great place to do a postdoc. So, yeah, stay in touch with people and don't be afraid to go talk to people. I'm always looking for talented DPhil students and postdocs, anyone who's interested in any of the things I talked about, you know, on this podcast, just get in touch. Uh, the lab website is packerlab.org. It's very easy to find. Uh, and so if you have any questions, just reach out to me. Or if you want to uh, join us and do some fun experiments in the lab, then uh, let us know. Thanks a lot, Adam. I hope you enjoyed this episode of CortexCast. If so, please subscribe to the podcast or leave a comment. Your hosts for this episode were Alex von Klemperer, Lucas Krona, and myself. The theme music is by Eves Blue. If you'd like to find out more about Cortex Club, go to cortexclub.com. Thanks for listening.